Yeah, because you are the editor now. Right. So yeah. really, I'm the cause of my own suffering. Aren't we always? I love causing my own suffering. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. In a week full of veggies, I am the carnivore of the cast. <laughs> Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. I am an occasional omnivore. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. I'd like to say that I'm a vegetarian, but I'm actually probably going to have to side with Matt for this one. Anyway, all these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the EDHREC cast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. What's our topic this week, fellas? We're talking veggies. Yeah, you know, you got to eat your veggies. It can't just all be, you know, the really fun cards in EDH. We do occasionally also have to, you know, get the stuff that makes the deck actually run properly. So we're going to take a look at some stuff to make sure that our decks are, are functioning the way that they should. You guys ready? I suppose. I am indeed. But, of course, before we actually get into the main topics, Matt, I understand that you've recently received some new cards. I did. I, I was opening up and uh, let me... Pull up my orders real quick. So, I, I happen to feast upon Ultimate Masters price slashing, if as it were. So, today I got four Daybreak Coronets, four Hyena Umbra. Oh, nice. Two Keen Sense. I know it's not an Ultimate Masters. Four Slippery Boggle of the Eventide variety because Old Frame is the best. And then I also happen to get a Thespian Stage and a Dark Depths, because Moldrotha just needs it. Just needs it. I, lo I love the way that you were uh, count like calling those out. It was very seasonal of you. You know, you had four Daybreak Coronet, five Soul Rings, and a Partridge and a Pear Tree. Like, it was, it was, it was very classic for the season. Now, see, I thought he was going to break into, like, uh, uh, the Count of Sesame Street. Four <laughs> Daybreak Coronets. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. A friend of mine has a Baron Von Count deck, and I guarantee that you just made his day because every time he plays a spell in that deck and the, the ticker goes down for him to eliminate a player, he always makes that ah, uh, ah, uh, uh, laugh. Just gets real, real wicked excited. I mean, oh, yeah. the Count, he is Sesame Street. He's not a Muppet. Strike against him, but Sesame Street is still pretty good. <laughs> Anyway, let's move in now to the main topic. We're going to briefly discuss first the average deck feature on EDH Rec. And especially, we kind of want to have, I guess for lack of a better term, this is sort of a, a treatise on eating your vegetables. We were recently sort of toying around with the average deck feature, and it's pretty interesting to note how it works. You'll see on any EDH Rec Commander page that there's a certain breakdown for the types of cards that are actually listed in that commander's deck. You know, it might have 37 creatures or 32 lands, which is really low, or 10 instants or 10 spells or something. So when you're using the average deck feature on EDH Rec, it will take that many of the most popular cards of that type and create an average deck for you based off of the most popular cards which is really, really awesome. But there are also some other types of categories that we were kind of interested in that we thought that we might discuss because those may be more than just the breakdown of a creature type. You know, are you playing this many instants or enchantments or artifacts? You know, the actual other categories might be more interesting and more conducive to constructive deck building. But before we actually get to those other categories, we just wanted to briefly run around the average deck feature. Mainly, I'm kind of interested in, do you guys use this feature a whole lot? Do you recommend it yourself? Well, one thing I will briefly note here, too, is part of the genesis for this topic was a couple other podcasts had gotten in a Twitter discussion about net decking. Um, the Brothers Warcast, we mentioned on that show with Henry, had just done a show on net decking that mm -hmm. was really, really interesting. And in talking about it on Twitter with um, the guys at the Legendary Creature Podcast, we were all kind of going back and forth on, debt, on, on net decking, basically. And the, the average deck feature on EDH Rec came up as kind of a generic net deck for a particular commander so that conversation with those shows was kind of the genesis of us talking about this in the first place and then we kind of expanded it to discussing the uh, vegetables and and the cards you need to run in a deck 
So I thought I would mention that to start with. And then we've also kind of talked in the past about this average deck list in a way um, that you need to kind of be cautious because if your commander is one that can be built in multiple ways, the average deck list is just going to get you kind of a real slapdash combination of cards that won't necessarily synergize well together. Using Atraxa, for example, you're going to get, you know, a mix of Planeswalkers and plus one counter stuff and maybe Infect and using an average combination of that's going to leave you with a mess of a deck. Yeah, that's definitely true. Like, Atraxa is definitely a classic example. I'm sure she comes up a whole lot on every EDH podcast. Excuse me, uh, EDH podcast. Um, but yeah, there are so many ways that you can take her, and they're all going to be, you know, there will be a specific marquee card of that different strategy. If you've got a lot of Planeswalkers, then you might have something like the Chain Veil showing up a whole lot on Atraxa's page. Uh, but if you're using plus one counters instead, then you'll have Hardened Scales showing up really popular on Atraxa's page. And those don't necessarily belong in the same deck if you're trying to take you know her in different directions but by using the average deck feature that is indeed one of the problems that you might run into where you're showing up with a whole bunch of cards that actually denote more particular strategies so that's certainly one fault of the average deck feature aside from that though are there other positive things that you find to using the feature uh, for me it's it's my favorite first step um, after i've put together my rough deck list it's like the it's the very first step in the first polish so I go to the average deck list for that commander and see what things I didn't think of or what things I didn't remember. Because, you know, no matter how many cards you know or think you know, you just can't know them all or you're going to forget, you know, one or two of the ones that you meant to put in your deck just by virtue of it taking, you know, X amount of time to put in that first 120 cards or whatever it is. So it's kind of my first uh, proofreading, essentially, on, on a deck is to go look at the average deck list and see, oh, man, I... Totally forgot that I wanted to put this card in the deck, and it's right there on the average deck list. So it's it's a good, real quick first pass thing to do on a deck. Yeah, I do the pretty much the same thing. I'll, I'll get my base list together. Uh, for me, it might be you know I'll, I'll intentionally get eighty cards together or ninety, and then I'll go to the EDH rec page for whatever commander it is or whatever card it is, and and look for some of those synergies that I missed. Uh, one thing that the internet is very good about is kind of that Wikipedia effect or that group think all piles in together and they, they find those synergies that, you know, the average player might miss even, you know, some, some good deck builders might miss. Uh, so it's always nice just to see what are those synergies that I miss? Like is, you know, this Jun deck is fecundity actually just insane in it, stuff like that. Those are some of the things that I, I usually look for first. Then I get up to my 110, 120 cards and, and whittle my way down. Once I get all those things that I might've missed on that first pass. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also, I'm, there are certain strategies that I'm personally just not very familiar with. Uh, when I was starting off building a group hug deck, for example, I really wasn't entirely sure what to do with the deck, aside from the fact that, you know, Kaneos and Tiro, which is the commander that I ended up going with, that they had, you know, come with a precon. And so there was already a 99 that I could use. But once data started accumulating on EDH rec, I actually kind of wanted to see generally what the breakdown was of different types of cards. And then the average deck feature was pretty helpful for me because I knew some specific like 20 cards that I wanted to play, but I didn't know what other meat and bones would actually surround it. I didn't know what else would fill up the, the rest of that deck aside from the few that I wanted to play. So having that average deck feature was also a really good starting point, as you mentioned, Dana, to sort of fill in the rest of that deck with other necessities. So I did find that pretty useful, too. But you also have mentioned that there maybe are downsides, such as the uh, the mishmash of different types of strategies within a singular, uh, a single commander's abilities. Are there other downsides that maybe you could see with using the average deck feature? I mean, I guess it depends on how much of a downside you think it is for your deck to maybe look like somebody else's deck. So, like if if you are digging too many things out of the average deck list and you run the risk of your deck looking very similar to someone else who did the same thing even if they're doing it right. And by right, I mean like not taking a mismatch of strategies. So even if you're using the, the tool correctly and, and not making a mess of the deck, you then run the risk such as it is of having a deck that just looks very similar to someone else doing the same thing. But that maybe isn't necessarily a problem either. I guess it depends on how you uh, look at that, whether that's important to you or not. Matt, what do you think? Um, I think the big thing is if you try to, fo like Jaina said, uh, you want to focus it down a little bit. If you look at it just from the general commander page, it can get pretty scattered. And that's one of the big reasons that Don, you know, the, the man behind the, the site, put in all those themes pages on there. Uh, so you can filter it down. So you look at the commander and you see there's Atraxa with Planeswalkers and 
plus one, plus one counters and et cetera, et cetera. You can filter it down so it, it kind of drowns out all that white noise for you. Uh, so it, it's not so much an issue because there are tools in place to kind of get around a lot of the the downfalls of the data because, you know, once you get up to a certain point, there's so much it just kind of blends together. But there are ways to work around it and, and kind of zoom out or zoom in whatever you're trying to do. So any downfall there really is, there, there are ways to, to get away from that too. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. So Dana, kind of going back to that discussion that you mentioned about the net decking that other podcasts had mentioned, do you personally qualify this whole average deck feature or the use of EDHREC as net decking? No, no, not at all. And part of that discussion too is I kind of had to then myself um, redefine what I would consider a net deck because just because you're copying a, a deck list, I guess, from somebody else, I don't even know if I consider that net decking if you're copying their list because you find it interesting. You know, if somebody builds a really cool version of a, you know, Rayhan and whoever, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking of Rayhan. So someone builds a really cool Atraxa list that's, that's different than something you've seen before and you want to try it out, you should, what, not play that really cool idea because someone else did it? Like, that's kind of ridiculous. So... In the conversation, the realization I kind of had was when I think of net decking, what I think of is someone who's just generically looking for a good deck and doesn't care about anything, but I want this deck to beat people, how it plays is irrelevant to me. So I that the discussion, at least making me think about it between the average deck feature and the whole conversation was I just redefined what I think of in terms of net decking. Hmm. All righty, Matt, what are your thoughts? So as the 60 card player, as you know, I play competitive formats fairly often. Net decking doesn't have near the stigma in in a lot of my play groups as it does in Commander. Uh, net decking is finding, you know, to me at least, is finding that optimized list, kind of what Dana alluded to. Uh, whether it's you know this is the tuned storm list for modern, or this is the standard deck that you know the the, the base model, but very very few people actually stick with the the stock list. Uh, a lot of players will take the the general or you know a generic red deck wins for standard deck and they'll well I don't really like this card so much so I'm going to try to focus on this so they will always tune it so sure it might be a net deck and the overall strategy was taken but it it's still tuned it's still personalized a little bit I don't know very many commander players that keep even their own brews together as the exact same 99 or 100 cards for more than a week or two there's always tinkering to be done so to me, a net deck is a starting point, but there's always some sort of personalization. If you don't change anything about a card for weeks on end, then you might be getting to that territory where it is kind of a the derogatory term it's become. But I, I don't like it when people throw out the term net deck because I think it means that people don't really do their homework. And some people just need a place to start. Joey, you even said, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not terribly familiar with this archetype, so I'm going to take a stock list of what somebody else is doing and I'm going to use that as a starting point, but I mean, when you figured out your group hug deck, you even said in a previous episode, oh yeah, I have to change my win conditions every week because people adapt. There's always that tinkering going on. So it might've started out as a net deck, quote unquote, but very rarely do decks stay that way. And I think that's one thing that people tend to forget and move away from is a net deck is something that it's, it's immobile. Whereas yeah. every deck that people play, yeah, yeah for it, sure. it's always going through different iterations. So even as a competitive player where you need a starting point, I, I do not like the term net deck. And I think people kind of throw it around willy nilly just to, you know, oh, well, I have nothing else to say, but oh, the net deck oh, and a conversation. It's net deck. Sorry. Bye. Yeah. And I think there's some sense of like people want to make sure that originality still remains a, a large piece of the format because that has long been given the restrictions of the format, the, you know, making original, inventive new decks is certainly really, really fun. But that's exactly it. The reason that I use EDH rec at all is so that I can find a good starting place to try out a brand new strategy. And Dana, like you mentioned, making sure that I don't forget my essentials. Like there are things that I need to make sure that my deck works. And especially if it's a new strategy, I'm not always certain what those new things 
will be that I need. I might not be as familiar with the fact that this particular type of commander needs to have extra damage spells, or this particular type of commander actually secretly needs to have more protective spells or things like that. It's not the kind of thing that's necessarily obvious. So, you know, taking the recommendations, the group think, I suppose, of other people, like, I, I feel like it's actually a pretty responsible thing to do to take a look around and take a cue from other people as well. Because once you get started with that, you know, that first starting point, even if it is an average deck and it is kind of a, a little blank, like you're right, you can fix and tune it and it always continues to evolve. And it's it's nice to have a good first place to start because there are a lot of folks who kind of like me may not always know where to start. So it's it's really useful to have that initial tool. Yeah, I, I think net decking, it's, it's gotten such a bad reputation, but it's like you said, Joey, it, it's actively asking the group think for help. You're asking, right. you know, I don't know this. I'm just asking for help from the EDH rec, the, the general deck list. I, I need that group think to help me get to where I want to start. And then I can go from there and just get the basics down. And I right. think that's, that's, that's something not just in magic, but in general, people should ask for help a lot more than, than they really do. So net decking, I think is kind of buys into that. Just don't ask for help. You have to do it yourself. And I, I don't, I don't like that attitude. Yeah. And, and also another thing to note, too, for this kind of thing is that while it's true that, you know, a, a resource like EDHREC is amassing a bunch of the most popular stuff, which doesn't always translate to necessarily being the most effective stuff. Matt, as you mentioned, that is certainly different depending on your playgroup. There are certain win conditions that I could run in my group hug deck that, you know, another person might not be able to pull off, for example. But it's, it's also just a, a I guess I'm just sort of repeating myself. It's a, it's a really great place to start and to eventually learn and find out more and begin to expand off of a strategy that's a little bit new. Uh, kind of tying back into that whole average deck feature, the average deck assigns a bunch of cards into a list based off of their type, because frankly, that's the only way that we can actually notate those things. There's a whole bunch of different categories that you can you know put cards into, but for the purposes of EDHREC and gathering a bunch of data, Putting them into, you know, this many creatures, this many instants, that many sorceries is certainly the most easy and measurable way, and it's definitely very effective. But also in our own personal deck building experiences, moving on to a, a slightly new subject here, while EDHREC breaks things down by card type, there are other categories that we would personally use that when we're divvying up our deck to see what components it's made of, there are other categories that we would use to see what we still need and whether what other things need to be uh, to, to be put in there to make sure that the deck functions. So I kind of wanted to probe you guys about those things too. Instead of just saying I need this many creatures or this many instants or this many lands or whatever, what are other categories that you guys specifically would look for when creating a deck? Dana? Um, yeah, I, I generally don't think in terms of creatures or artifacts or sorceries, instants, etc., um, unless the deck is specifically, you know, an artifact deck or an enchantment deck or something. Um, but generally, I'm just breaking it down into I want X, I, I want some amount of ramp, and that may change based on the commander or what the deck wants to do. I want some amount of card draw, and again, that may change if I have a bunch of graveyard recursion um, or maybe a bunch of token making. I can maybe get away with less card draw, but I, I want some way to put resources into my hand. Uh, I want ways to answer problems. I would call that removal, whether it's targeted or board wipes. I want some mix of those two things. Um, and then to get more specific, I almost always want to run some kind of way to deal with the graveyard. I almost always want to run some kind of way to protect my own board state. And that's kind of been a new thing in the last few years I've been focusing more on is having at least one Teferi's Protection slash Heroic Intervention type card in my deck. And I have a win con. Like, how do I win this game aside from just amassing a larger board type than somebody else so so those are the main things i'm looking for in my decks do you did the categories you guys have resemble that at all for me that's actually really really spot on ramp draw and removal almost always seem to be very very big staples and after that it gets a little bit more dicey i've kind of played around with it you know there may be things that i've played around with maybe this is a synergy category Board protection is certainly a big one. That's actually become a more recent revelation for me. And trying to figure out where to put a card like, frankly, just Counterspell, for example. I, for a long time, was putting that into the removal category because I figured it actually, you know, is used to one-for-one one someone else's card. But really, it's much more often used to make sure that my stuff stays where it is and that no one else is messing with me. Uh, win conditions is another big one. But then, yeah, sometimes it's a little variable depending on the type of deck that I'm using. 
you know, protection, board protection can mean a, a different thing. If I'm running my group hug, I'll need more of those propaganda effects to keep my life total up. Or if I'm, you know, playing my reanimator decks, which I always do, having reanimator cards versus reanimator targets, you know, playing victimize and reanimate and animate dead versus, you know, Shieldred and Jin Cataxius and, you know, Woodfall Primus, like those are also really important categories to split into as well. So sometimes it does depend on the actual type of deck that I'm building. I think the only difference that I really have between you guys, you, you talk, kind of talked about uh, synergy and, and protection, stuff like that. I just kind of lump that into just utility cards in general, cards that don't have a very specific use, but uh, maybe kind of like a Boros Charm type of card. Like you said, Teferi's Protection, anything like that. Um, just ways to kind of get out of different scenarios. I've said many, many times, I don't like going into a, a game where I don't have an out to any given situation. Um, something that I can't draw to, which is probably why I play green-white so much. But yeah, I just I, I like having just a, a kind of a toolbox feel for whatever I'm doing, even if it's in, you know, Grixis colors. I like being able to have access to all sorts of different answers, all sorts of different draw spells to get out of different scenarios. And then, yeah, board wipes, I would say, is a little bit of removal, a little bit of utility, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, I, I, I agree 98% of what with what you guys are both saying. Now, Joe, you mentioned that the board protection thing is new. What what kind of made that be a thing that you started focusing on more? I'm curious because it's also relatively new for me. I it, it that's that's an interesting thing to note that if it's also kind of new for you, I always just assume that you've 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 known everything because you're 100 years old. But uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, for a long time, really. I just especially at the beginning of my commander quote career, I suppose, uh, a lot of the only protection that I would actually run in the deck at all were the classic lightning greaves and swiftfoot boots. And then eventually I realized, probably around the time that the experienced commanders came out, that keeping my commander alive was usually very, very vital to my game plan because the commanders that I run tend to be, you know, the, the thesis of the deck, and the deck doesn't really function without them very well. And so I eventually kept on adding more and more stuff to keep them alive, like asceticism and other stuff like that. And then especially, I'd have to say, with my tendency toward, towards reanimator strategies, having, like, getting a whole bunch of stuff out and then keeping it there is really the way that I win. I can't just play one or two reanimation spells and get a really big creature into play because if that creature doesn't stick around for very long, well, then it's not going to do a whole lot for me, is it? I'm not actually going to win the game if I only have my Jinkataxius out for half a turn. Like, I actually need to make sure that it stays there. And so that's especially where those counter spells started becoming more and more prevalent in my deck, not because I'm trying to be Mr. Control Player, just because I'm trying to make sure that my, you know, Woodfall Primus and my Shieldred actually get to stay and stick around and continue to do the things that I need them to do. So that's probably why, just because the nature of Reanimator forced me to evaluate my own board as being a very precious resource in addition to my life total and the cards in my hand. Yeah, and that and when you sense. think about it too, counterspells are a, a certain, to a certain degree, uh, removal as well. You know, somebody's casting their commander, it's got haste and it's going to kill you, you know, the next turn. You counterspell it, it's as good as killing the creature. It's just in blue and depends on what kind of axis you're playing on. So that's one thing too, is people think, you know, counterspells, you know, it's only for one certain reason. Well, no, I mean, it keeps people from doing a lot of different stuff. So a lot of these, you know, categories that we have, they're, they're, they're pretty ambiguous too. You can kind of cross over between, you know, doing the removal, but also kind of doing some grave hate. You know, you, night soil is a creature when you think about it, because you're getting rid of Joey's stuff in his graveyard. You don't want him to yeah. diluvian, your diluvian primordial everybody. So <laughs> you get your own one, one. It's sweet. Yeah, and that's really the problem, too, is that, you know, a counterspell can be both protection and removal. So, like, having that flexibility of cards is especially one of those things that makes it so tough to to evaluate and to break it down into different categories. We've got some certain staples. Everyone talks about how you need ramp and draw. But figuring out the categories of the rest of your deck and especially making sure that the cards that you're running fit into those categories, I think, is really important. So evaluating those cards on a different axis, you know, is especially important. Figuring out precisely how you use them. That's how I ran into the card Stubborn Denial, for example. I was initially running Counterspell, and then I decided, no, I'll use Swan Song because it's one mana cheaper. And then I realized that frequently the stuff that I needed to counter was often, you know, 
the basically just going to be an instant or sorcery that destroyed my board. So I was like, oh, Stubborn Denial is actually going to be basically the same card, and I'll always be protecting a whole big creature on my field, so this is going to be a better use for me. Like, just finding out how the cards work within your deck, if they do have that degree of flexibility, is especially important. And, also talking about these categories, this is kind of a way that I tend to make cuts in my deck, too. With I have a card in my deck that doesn't quite fit into one of these categories that the rest of the deck can be sorted into. It's just sort of there as a general utility and it's not fitting into my category of win condition or removal or draw or ramp or protection or something like that. Then that might be a signal that it doesn't actually synergize with the rest of the deck and therefore maybe doesn't deserve to stay in the 99. That's Yeah, that's as good of a uh, way to make that choice. It's a very fair decision, yeah. So we've got some numbers racked up here for you too, but before we get there, we're going to challenge some stats. There are some cards on EDHREC that are seeing a lot of play, and maybe they're not seeing enough play, and frankly we just want to you know, challenge and make sure that people know where those cards ought to be rather than where they're showing up percentage-wise. Matt, do you mind starting us off challenging some stats? I sure can. So I, my challenge of stats is kind of two cards, but I want to focus on one. Uh, the first one is secondary. It is Insole Artifact. It is one in a blue uh, enchant or, or enchantment aura. You enchant an artifact. Enchanted artifact becomes a 5-5. Five, five. But the one that I like a little bit more costs one more mana. It's Tezzeret's Touch. It's one blue-black for an enchant artifact. does the same thing. Uh, makes it a base power and toughness 5-5 five, five in addition to its other types. But it reads, uh, when enchanted artifact is put into a graveyard, return that card to its owner's hand. So it's a nice way to protect key artifacts that you might be wanting to keep around. I think it's just something that, that people kind of overlook because it was in a Planeswalker deck, correct? It, was, it wasn't I in PAX. Um, so, yeah. 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 But it's currently only played in 242 decks. I think if there's an artifact that you're trying to keep around, say you're an Esper and you want to keep that uh, Norn's Annex around, a good way to protect it is, you know, slap a Tezzeret's Touch on there. They blow it up. It's going to come back and you can recast it later. Um, so it's just nice insurance. It's board protection like we were just talking about. Um, and just make sure that, you know, th- those key artifacts that you need to keep around or you just don't want to go away permanently can can make their way back to your hand if you don't have any other recursion uh, handy. And, you know, you get a 5-5 five, five beater out of it too, which, you know, isn't the worst thing either. Yeah, you know, that's not nothing. Sometimes those artifact decks can have the tendency to dotal around a little bit, so having an efficient beater can be very effective. And getting your stuff back into your hand after it go, go away, that's also quite nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan, and it's, it, I don't think I've ever seen one, but uh, every time that I, I look at it, I played a standard deck that was all about Soul Artifact on an Ornithopter. Tezzeret's Touch is a little bit better than that. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it's better than 242 decks for Commander. All right, sounds neat. I'm going to move on to mine next. My challenge to stats this week will actually be for a Muldrotha the Gravetide deck. I am personally a fan of the Mimiplasm. That's always been my baby Soltide deck, but Muldrotha is definitely a popular commander, and there's a piece of tech that I think more people need to be running. Currently, the card Soltai Ascendancy shows up in 41% of decks, and Soltai Ascendancy is certainly nice. It can put a bunch of cards into your graveyard, puts two up, up to two every turn if you'd like sort of helps you filter your draw fill your graveyard and with Muldrotha since you can cast cards from your graveyard that basically just is a way of kind of drawing cards but there's another piece of tech that could put stuff into your graveyard that I think is even better that's the card Perpetual Timepiece this is a two mana artifact that you can tap to put the top two cards of your deck into your graveyard and you can pay your graveyard into your library effectively saving it from a Bajuka Bog at instant speed like This is not only easier on your mana because it's not three mana of different colors, but it's also like a piece of tech that can save your stuff in case it comes under fire. I think this is just an amazing choice that more people need to be playing. Currently, it only shows up in, I think, about 28% of Muldrotha decks. And if Soltai Ascendancy, if that can show up in 41% of decks, then Perpetual Timepiece, which I think is just a better card, that should definitely show up in more Muldrotha decks. I would agree. It's a really good card, and I'm surprised it is actually not in more decks. Yeah. Matt, do you have any experience with that one in your Muldrotha deck? I've never played it, and I think I've only like seen a couple just ever going around, so it might be something that I do a little homework on at some point and, and play around with. Yeah, sounds good. All right, Dana, let's wrap up with yours. Um, so I was involved in a bit of a little of a, a Christmas game with some people where we send each other you know, a handful of cards as kind of a breadcrumb to 
a trail of breadcrumbs to to make a deck with. So you get you know half a dozen uh, inexpensive cards, and they have to build something using those particular cards. And over the course of picking out the cards for this deck, and and the deck I was going to kind of breadcrumb them into building was Traxos Scourge of Krug. I checked the EDH Rec average deck page, and one card that popped up on there that you know made complete sense when I saw it was Arena of the Ancients. It's in 408 decks on EDH Rec. For those that don't know, it's a three-man artifact that was first printed in the Legends, and it just says legendary creatures don't untap during their controller's untap step. Uh. When Arena of the Ancients enters the battlefield, tap all legendary creatures. So, you know, I, I picked up a copy for that that game because it's perfect in a Traxos deck. He comes into play tapped anyway. He never untaps until you play a historic spell. So basically it does, for the most part, nothing to you while tapping down and keeping everyone else's commanders from untapping. Oh, it's a perfect fit there. It's a cheap card. It's, you know, like 75 cents. Um, excellent for that deck. However, there's a bunch of other decks where it would probably do really good work. It, it's only in 400 decks in a DH rec. And basically if you're playing any kind of a Planeswalker for a commander deck, most of those aren't heavily into creatures mm-hmm probably not legendary creatures for sure i would think every one of those decks could would should probably at least take a look at arena of the ancients it's not going to hurt you or at least not nearly as much as it's going to hurt somebody else there's commanders like uh, marie cribere who i think that's how you pronounce her name who taps to steal a creature and doesn't untap unless during your untap step ever you have to force her to untap well that's not going to hurt you either you can steal someone's stuff and you have to have the means to untap her. Arena's not going to hurt you there. Things like Grim Grin, who doesn't untap. Um, Norn and the Wary, who bounces in and out. There's there's just a bunch of different commanders that wouldn't be punished at all by running Arena. And you would definitely punish plenty of other players, particularly someone running a Recce History of Kamigawa deck. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't think it's you know uh, an amazing card everywhere, but I think it's probably really good in more hundred more than 400 decks. That is really nasty. This is a cool pick. Well, I thank you. And it's a cheap card. I mean, it's you can pick up the Chronicles version for next to nothing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that definitely can shut down some people who rely on their commanders for offense or anything that has uh yeah, oh man, I'm just I'm I'm I'd be pretty mad if you played that against me. I, I hope it happens sometime. It, <laughs> and it even gets around vigilance because it taps the creatures when it comes into play. Yeah, that's gross. Yeah. All right. I'm I'm yeah. super on board. Tell that Narset player to suck a fart. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean you tell them that anyway, wow. but you tell them it with a card. Alrighty. So since we're talking about vegetables on this episode, we now want to move into our most popular vegetables. We're gonna be organizing them by percentage here, but generally speaking, when we were going through the categories, one of the constants that we saw was definitely ramp draw and removal and in fact when we look on the top cards of all time according to edh rec we see a lot of cards in those particular categories we'll get to the specific numbers in a bit but i kind of just wanted to breeze through really quick what the top most popular ramp draw and removal spells are according to edh rec Eventually, some of these categories are going to be a little tougher to parse through, you know, if something draws enough cards to be considered a card draw spell, for example. But for now, we'll start with ramp, and that one's definitely straightforward. Anything that gives you an extra mana advantage on your next turn. Matt, do you mind running us through the top 10 ramp cards according to EDH Rec? I sure can. So number one, pretty much everybody knows what this card is going to be. It's the most played card in the format. It's Soul Ring. Yes, it's Soul Ring. Number two, Cultivate. Uh, Number three, is it Signet? Four, Rakdos Signet. Five is Orzov Signet. Six is Kodama's Reach. Seven, Boro Signet. Eight, Demir Signet. Nine, Azorius Signet. And number 10, Steve himself, the Sakura Tribe Elder. <laughs> Naturally. I mean, it's pretty basic stuff that we would anticipate. All of the signets are non-green, for example, because green has other options available. Kodama's Reach and Cultivate show up, although interestingly, they are far apart. Cultivate shows up in 44% of decks that can run it, but Kodama's Reach only shows up in 39% of decks that can run it. And that's, you know, pretty weird. That I, I assume it has to be based on the slight price differences in the card or something like that or slight availability based on precons things like that you know probably something to that effect but generally this is probably the type of ramp setup that i would imagine what do you guys think are there any ramp cards you think that are missing that should be more popular than these 10 i really like farseek actually i think that's probably one of the more underrated cards because you can grab 
anything with a basic land type and you can grab, say you pay one and a green to cast it, you can grab a, a watery grave or, you know, an, an off-colored uh, shock land or dual land, uh, whatever you need to do. So it's it's much better mana fixing than, say, a, a nature's lore uh, with all these three and four or five color decks running around. I think Farseek kind of gets uh, kind of the short end of the stick as far as attention. So I think that's one that um, should be higher than it really is. That's a cool one. Whereas, whereas I would say Nature's Lore, because Nature's Lore will get you, a, you know, it has to be a forest, but assuming you have a diversified mana base, or I shouldn't say diversified, so assuming you have a expensive mana base, <laughs> maybe it's the way to phrase it, you can still get your shock lands or your ABUR duels or whatever untapped as well. But I, I think Farseek's a really good card too. Um, I would probably still most of the time run both of those two over Cultivate and Kadama's Reach. I might well run all four, but I... But if I'm looking to build a deck and throwing in a green ramp, sp- green ramp spell, um, those two are probably being added to my list before Cultivate and Kadama's Reach. That's really interesting mm. to hear. I don't think I've ever wanted to, to do that. But two mana ramp is really, is that important, you think? It's two mana, but it also is saving you a mana. So essentially, you are spending, you know, you're spending two versus three, but you're getting one back because the land's coming into play on tap. So yes, it costs two to cast, but you're, you're essentially only spending one mana to do so. That makes a pretty big difference, I think. It, it certainly can in later stages of the game if you need to like chain that into another spell. But at the beginning of the game, you know, using that extra one mana may not always be effective. I, I think it depends on how big you're trying to go to. I, I, I know, Dana, just you as a deck builder, just throughout all of our conversations, I know you like to keep everything fairly low to the ground. So I do. Yep. Nature's lore, Farseek, all that kind of fun stuff. If you're just trying to get just a, a quick critical mass, that's fine. If you're playing the long game, though, um, I think Cultivate and Kudama's Reach are better if you're trying to go bigger over the course of the game because you are getting that land into play. Granted, it's tapped, but you're also making sure you don't miss your next land drop. So you're getting two lands for that extra mana. Um, I think it just depends on the deck. And I think a lot of you know, a majority of players, they want to play Commander because they want to do those big and fancy explosive things. So that's why Kadama's Reach and Cultivate are played more than Farseek and Nature's Lore, just because it lets you go bigger over the course of the game. Although, to be honest, if I'm playing a green deck, I'm probably not just running two ramp spells. I'm probably running more like oh, four yeah, or five or six. So I'm probably also running like I, I highly doubt I'm running Nature's Lore and not also Cultivate. See, I, I usually actually skip Cultivate and Kadama's Reach and I always go for Sky Shroud Claim. That's one of my favorite spells. But. That's usually my fifth. I, I would usually go with like with like Far Seek and or Rampant Growth and Nature's Lore, the two that the, the Cultivate Kadama's Reach. And then I my, my four mana one would be yeah. Sky Shroud Claim. So moving sort of out of the green section, and I know, Matt, that that's a very scary prospect for you, but moving away (laughs) from green cards specifically, there are also two other artifacts that I definitely think are pretty important to mention, and that's Commander Sphere and Chromatic Lantern. They are certainly among the top cards ever played, but they're down around the 21% popularity, as opposed to the 34 and 38 and 40% popularity that we see a bunch of these other signets being at. And those are things that I, I guess I'm surprised are, are so low, but I think that again kind of speaks to the thing that you were mentioning, Dana, about how these are two mana ramp spells that also can immediately give you mana too, and, and that's definitely very important. But just given, you know, the prevalence of, you know, three or four or five color decks within the format, then having those other cards be up very popular is pretty important. In fact, throwing out another two mana mana rock, I'd also suggest Felwarstone. I think I'd probably be more inclined to put Felwarstone into one of my decks than a signet felwar stone has just been always good for me every time that i've played it and dana i think you even wrote an article about that one or perhaps it was exotic orchard but i guess the the theory still applies right yeah because it can give you mana equal to anyone else's color and you did that article with a whole bunch of different games and you found that there almost was never a situation where you didn't have the colors you needed with that type of effect yeah in in a three color deck i am definitely probably running those kind of rocks that give me the option to make all of my colors versus the signets where you're limited to two yeah i agree yeah that makes um, sense. It, it, the ones i think are kind of underplayed as, as two mana rocks um the signets are great but i think the talismans kind of get overlooked sometimes oh that's also very true yeah those are just excellent and they just aren't very widely available and they're only available in the allied colors too right yeah that definitely hurts them for sure 
Yeah, but you're right. Those are actually definitely very, very good. All right, so those are some popular ramp spells, but, you know, got to move on to the other veggies. We can't just have carrots. We also have to have broccoli. In this case, we're going to be looking at draw effects, according to the top cards of EDH Rec. This one's a little thorny, though, because not all of the cards that we listed among the top 10 most popular draw effects are actually drawing you more than one card. Some of them are cantrips, and I know that that does kind of not necessarily count. It depends. That, that's, again, where these categories start to get a little bit blurry along their lines because personally I guess what I would count as a draw card is something that nets me more than one card but it does just start getting dicey anyway I'll get to the top 10 rather than you know hemming and hawing about it so looking at the top 10 most popular draw effects in the format we're seeing first Phyrexian Arena then Brainstorm one of those sort of cantropy effects that I was just hemming and hawing about after that in third place we've got Aristic Study followed by Sylvan Library Ponder Skull Clamp Factor Fiction Teamer Ascendancy, weirdly enough, then Tamiyo Field Researcher, whose plus one ability can draw you cards based off of creatures dealing damage, and then finally Prime Speaker Zagana, who draws cards equal to her power, and of course is powerful, equal to the biggest creature you control. So we've got a pretty widespread of draw effects according to the most popular cards here. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Joey. I will hem and haw with you all day about uh, some of those cantrips and how people shouldn't be playing them. Uh, DJ fought the good fight on a recent episode of the Command Zone saying that Brainstorm is overplayed, which I 1,000% agree with. And I've... <laughs> I think that was one of your first challenge the stats, it probably, in fact. It, I remember yeah, yeah, it uh, was. Dean and I, Dean Goody, former guest, and I, we, uh, right. we got into it a little bit, which is fine. I just, I, I like I said, I come from that, that realm of 60-card formats where Brainstorm locking yourself is not a good place to be, especially when you're playing against buddies who maybe they're playing a combo deck and you have nothing but, you know, five and six drops in your hand and you have no lands coming up for two turns. That's a real thing. And I think people just want to overlook it because brainstorm makes them feel smart. And I'm not going to rant a whole lot more, but brainstorm, I do not think should be the number two draw effect, quote unquote. Uh, it should be much, much lower than, than it really is. Right. We've got Brainstorm, and also on that top 10 list, we additionally had Ponder, which is another cantrip, meaning just that it's a single card that replaces itself with a single right. card, rather than netting you more cards than you actually used. And frankly, that's, again, what makes it kind of dicey. Technically, I could have included Demonic Tutor, Diabolic Tutor, or even Eternal Witness on this list, because they also use one card and give you one more card in your hand. But doing that is just kind of messy, and we just wanted to acknowledge that cantrips aren't necessarily real advantage. Yeah. Anyway, talking about some of the cards on this list, are there any big draw effects that are missing? From yes. It, or just things that you'd expect to be higher? Yes, there's one card that is missing, and you both know what it is. Yes, we do. Go it's, ahead, Matt. Talk about green. Well, it's Rishkar's expertise. It's the best spell probably ever, maybe. I mean, it makes Ancestral Recall seem just... <laughs> but yeah, I mean... <laughs> okay, I'm not sure that's true. Yeah, but. it's pretty true. Uh, but yeah, Rishkar's expertise, like that that card is just absolutely insane. It's card advantage, both and you draw a bunch of cards and you get to cast another spell for free. So even if you just, you know, cantrip out and you cast a five drop, there are worse things to have happen. I think it's just an insanely powerful card, which you, unless something really, really bad happens, in which case you're not casting it to begin with, you're always going to end up plus on cards. Yeah, that's definitely a really, really powerful one. And that's kind of why we wanted to go over these particular categories, because the most popular, again, does not necessarily mean the most effective. Another thing that I think is notably missing from this list is the card Consecrated Sphinx. It draws you two cards whenever anyone else draws one card. That thing's absolutely ridiculous. It's better than something like you know, uh, a team or ascendancy, for example. No shade against that card. It's certainly cool. But Consecrated Sphinx is just bonkers that has drawn me so many cards and it's a really effective flying creature too so that's another thing that i would expect to see higher that i think is certainly better but again a lot of the stuff that we can see that makes up popularity is informed by things such as price that is a very expensive card too and not everyone has access to it dana what other observations do you have about this particular part of the list um i think more than specific cards it's just more the spread of cards um a lot of these are like you said, either cards that don't necessarily net you card advantage are just giving you, you know, one for one. Or they're cards that are, are giving you draw delayed over multiple turns, like Phyrexian Arena. Mm. And Command Zone did a whole bit on Phyrexian Arena last summer. I want to say it was around July, talking about 
it takes you three turns to to draw. Well, you play Fractionary and it does nothing. You spent three mana. You accomplish nothing until the following turn in which you draw your first card. And then, you know, the turn after that, three turns, you're, you're at to two. You go to four turns before you draw your third card. It, it, that doesn't make it bad necessarily, but that's also like if, if you're only running things like Arena and Sylvan Library and, and Prime Speaker, I guess, draws you right away. But like too many of those effects, Consecrated Sphinx even, that don't draw you a card until it's too late, you're just you're, you're running the risk of never actually getting ahead. Those spells are really useful. I don't think you shouldn't run Phyrexian Arena. I love Phyrexian Arena, and I absolutely put it in my decks. But you shouldn't just rely on one kind of card draw. Mm. You should have a good mix. You should have the Ponders that let you dig down. You should have the Arenas and the Rustic Studies that give you like card draw spread out over multiple turns. And you should have those those high floor, low ceiling cards like Knight's Whisper and Harmonize that just put cards in hand with no variables full stop. So I think that's the one thing that's kind of missing from the list that's not getting you that spread necessarily of cards, particularly the high floor ones that just put um, numbers in hand. That's an excellent observation. If all of your card advantage spells function in exactly the same way, someone, an opponent can just have one answer to all of those and then you're just kind of screwed throughout the whole game. So having a diversity to back you up is an excellent, excellent observation. And that's also, yeah, I've, I've been on the painful truths train for a while for basically exactly that reason. I, I love that observation, Dana. That's really cool. And, well, I thank you. And before we move on, I also kind of want to note that card advantage, again, should not only be measured by cards in hand. I mean, this is something that we've discussed, especially on our Boris episode, but, you know, Rite of Replication Kicked, for example, is also technically netting you card advantage because it gives you more game pieces than it used up. Board wipes are, in fact, another type of advantage, technically, if you use one card and wipe out seven or ten or twenty of your opponent's cards. So, like, there are advantages in other ways, but card draw is definitely one of the main ways that people tend to talk about card advantage, so that's why we wanted to look at these specifically. I'll wrap up also by mentioning that there's another type of effect missing from this podcast popular list, and that's the Red Exile type of effect that we've been seeing a whole lot of, like Stolen Strategy or Sunbird's Invocation, or uh, what's the, I think it's Outpost Siege is, is another yeah, one that you're siege. a fan of, Dana. Yeah. So that's another type of uh, card advantage effect that we're not seeing a whole lot of right now, It's since it's you know fairly new design space, but I expect that that will definitely continue to become more and more popular because it's another neat explorative type of card advantage. Yeah, it's some we're going to finish up. What, oh, was, I'm sorry, Matt. I was say ahead. yeah, those red those red exile effects are great because they're finally giving red a chance to be red and, and stay on color, not break the color pie, but still do some very fun stuff. Like we've raved about Itali Primal Storm before, and just those kinds of effects right. are are great for the format. They're giving mono red players a chance to get out, even combining red with like Thousand Year Storm with blue. Uh, those effects too are, are are very very cool to see. Yeah. While while they also feel very red, it's not just it's not just they've concocted some strange out of color pie bandage for red. There are effects that really feel on theme with red, which I think makes them even better. Yeah, I like it. Alrighty, so we're gonna finish up our breakdown of these top popular cards and the most effective you know, vegetable cards, the things that you need to make your deck go, uh, by talking about some of the removal that we see on the most popular cards. Dano, do you want to take us through the top 10 removal spells that we're seeing? Number one, shockingly, Cyclonic Rift. I'm sure oh, no I thought one saw that one coming. Whoa. That is the first I thought, one on When the you list. said shockingly, I thought you were talking about shock. Right, yeah. Oh man, that would... <laughs> is is uh, maligned as Lightning Bolt sometimes is in, in Commander Man. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine Spark running shock. Get at me. <laughs> Uh, number two, Swords of Plowshares. Counterspell, number three. Mm -hmm. Putrefy, number four. Anguish Unmaking, number five. Merciless Eviction. Supreme Verdict and Path to Exile. And the bottom three would be Utter End, Beast Within, and Terminate. So actually there, Terminate is technically number 11, but I included it because I kind of had an asterisk next to Counterspell because of our discussion oh, earlier. Sure. It isn't necessarily a removal spell. Sometimes it might fall into a different category, but I just wanted to make sure that we had that noted there too. Fair. So basically what we're seeing here, we've got again kind of a spread of removal. We've got pretty classic things like Swords to Plowshares. And we're moving on to some more diverse stuff like Utter Ender Beast Within, which can hit a variance of number of targets rather than just creatures. But we've also got some mass removal spells counted in here too. And I think it's important 
Dana, like you were mentioning earlier, to sort of delineate the types of removal that you're running. Sort of like draw spells, you shouldn't just have one type of removal. If you have only single target removal spells or only creature removal spells or only artifact removal spells, you're going to be really, really up the creek without a paddle when it comes time for you to destroy everything. And it's nice to have a good spread of those too. But of the top 10 cards that we're seeing here for removal spells, about three of the 10 are mass removal, not including counterspell again. And extrapolating to the full page, we also get some other interesting data there too. But I want to take a second to take a look at that three out of 10. And I just kind of wondered, does that necessarily sound right for your decks? If you've got about you know 10 removal spells in your deck, are three of them board wipes, or is it a different type of ratio? I think it really depends on the deck. My Valduck deck, for example, um, I think I only have two board wipes. Uh, one's Anger of the Gods and one is Blasphemous Act. Obviously, Mono Red doesn't have a, a great deal there because it's all damage-based. But even in my Miri deck, which you know it, it's pretty creature-heavy, I think I'm only running one right now, actually. Really? Yeah, and, well, and it's, it's the destroy all non-white creatures, the Mass Calcify. Because I, I like to get really big, I like to ramp a lot with that, and then go super wide. Um, so I don't play a whole lot of Wraths in there, but then in um, any of my blue decks, my Shu Yun deck, for example, I have a bunch of board wipes because it's it's all about making tokens and recovering really quickly. Uh, so it's it's pretty easy for that deck to recover from a lot of board wipes. It just Yeah, for me, it really depends on the deck, how many board wipes in that removal package I'm playing. All right, Dana, what do you think? Yeah, I think the color spread really matters too. Like if I'm playing mono green, like the Mareki deck, for example, I'm not going to run Desert Twister just to have, you know, X amount of targeted removal spells. Mm. Conversely, if I'm talking about an Orzhov deck, I'm not going to exclude Anguish Unmaking or something just because I've already got Swords and Path and Utter End. So I, I think in like Orzhov colors, I probably definitely run more board wipes and targeted removal spells than I would in other color combinations because there's so many great ones. Right. And another, you know, in some other color I would run less than I usually do just because I'm I'm just I would rather not run one than I would run a bad one. Um so that definitely makes a big difference. But generally speaking, assuming I can find them, yeah, that looks about right for me. I usually try to always have at least three board wipes. Sometimes I go up to four if the color combination has enough great spells to to justify it. And I usually try to have another six to seven-ish targeted removal spells, particularly if they are really good ones like Beast Within or Chaos Warp or something that lets me hit basically anything I need to. Um, those are really tough to resist running if I can. So uh, that breakdown roughly looks accurate compared to what I do. Interesting. See, for me, it feels really quite wrong, actually. Uh, I feel as though I want to have an almost one-to-one relationship with mass removal to single target removal, uh, just because it, it feels to me like that's another way of netting card advantage. So I want to make sure that you know if the board state ever gets really out of control, that I've got a way to rein things back in, start over at square one so that I can get back into the race. Whereas a single target removal spell, it certainly can be a very useful political tool, you know, I, I don't necessarily, I, I don't know, I can use it to threaten someone's creature if they decide to come at me, for example, and that'll make them hit my opponent instead. Um, but usually I just feel like I actually really need to have some type of, of board wipe more than I need to have a single target removal spell. That, that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I guess I don't know why I think or play that way. I, I, I never necessarily feel like I'm not running enough board wipes in my decks at three to four. I never feel like I want to have six or seven, but I do like having the ways to solve problems. I like to have that surgical tool in hand versus the bludgeon that is a board wipe. Maybe it's just personal play style too. Like, I don't know if there's any math that makes my way make more sense um, necessarily in my meta or anything other than I think just play style wise, I like to have that precise single shot versus just, you know, crashing down the entire world for everybody. Yeah. So also kind of extrapolating to the full page, uh, I wanted to get into the ratio is a little bit different there. We're seeing of the top 10 spells, we've got about three of the 10 are mass removal. But if we kind of extrapolate a little bit 
else, then the, the numbers are a little bit different. Um, so when we go to the full top 100 cards page, we can actually see that about 27 of those cards are removal in some way, whether it's like a Crozen Grip or an Acidic Slime or a Merciless Eviction or a Blasphemous Act or a Chaos Warp. There's a whole bunch of different types of them. And there are in fact four that I couldn't quite categorize. But to get started with the main types of removal that we're most familiar with, on the whole top 100 most popular cards page, about 16 of the 27 removal spells that we're seeing are single target removal, which makes a little about, you know, 60% of the page or so. About seven of those 27 removal spells are mass removal of some type, which is roughly 25% of the page less than the 33% of the page that we were seeing with just the top 10. But then I mentioned also there's those four cards of the 27 that I couldn't really place in one category or another because they aren't necessarily single target, but they're not really mass removal either. Either like These are cards like Decimate or Crackling Doom or Aura Shards, cards that have the potential to take out several targets, but won't necessarily clear the entire board when you need it. So that that I also found to, pre, to, to be a pretty interesting breakdown. And again, it goes to the fact that those lines are very blurry. The types of removals that you have are, are, are very, very important. And frankly, I'm lumping, you know, just artifact and enchantment removal in the same category as things like Path to Exile, which are only creature removal. And that too is another type of delineation. So it is definitely a lot of blurry lines going on here. But we've got some pretty interesting ratios when we group them up in this way. Yeah, and I, th I think the, the, yeah, the, yeah, those yeah. medium removal spells you were talking about, Joey, I think that's where a lot of those utility really fun spells get, like uh, Peer's Whim is a new one that jumps to mind real quick, too. Um, mm. Just some cards that, it's not. It's kind of like a, a Phyrexian Arena when it comes to removal. You're not going to get everything right away, but you're going to get a steady stream of something like Aura Shards, for example. Right. Whereas if you run, you know, like you, like you said, Matt made that point there, if you're running all or a Sar Shard slash Grave Pack kind of cards, you're going to wind up in a situation where you get burned because those get removed before you can mm -hmm. accomplish anything. So it's, like I said, it's good to have the mix, just like, it's, just like with draw spells, it's good to have the mix here as well of those kind of slow burn removal spells or things that hit multiple targets versus, you know, just locking down on only board wipes or only single target removal or only whatever. Yeah. And I just also found those particular breakdowns really interesting. I certainly want to up the number of cards that I'm using in that sort of medium category, cards like Crackling Doom, which again can like hit something from every player, or Wind Grace's Judgment is a new one that I'm really excited about. But I, generally speaking, definitely like to have a lot more mass removal than I think most people is sort of what I'm learning here. Again, we're just looking at the most popular cards, not necessarily the most popular ratios within decks, which is a much harder number to actually find. But generally speaking, when I look at people's decks, I'm not finding a ton of board wipes, and I personally know that I err a whole lot on the side of running more board wipes because I think that that's a really great equalizer and helps me claw my way back into that game. So I just wanted to. I I know the real game. reason you like to play board wipes is because you just want to reanimate everything afterwards, anyways. So we we see honestly that might be a reason why I'm so biased towards them. You might have actually caught me out on the real. Yeah, reason. like it, Toxic Deluge is great when you play Rise of the Gar Dark Realms the very next turn. So. Yeah, no, I, you know what, that's, yeah, maybe I'm just inherently biased. I just love my mass removal because I, I know that I'm going to, you know, steal a bunch of stuff. I'm going to go grave robbing later. I, I think you may be onto something there, Matt. Well, it plays into what I said is, you know, I think it's probably just a, a bit of a playstyle thing for people. Yeah, for sure. Alrighty, so sort of breaking down the top cards, now that we've talked about the different types of cards that are, you know, veggies and stuff, we also kind of wanted to put them into categories looking at those top 100 most popular cards too. And I think that these numbers are also pretty interesting. Of the top cards, we put them into different types. One of them is a miscellaneous category, which is again tough to categorize, but we'll get to that in a second. When we're looking at the top 100 most popular cards in the format, about 28 of them, 28 of the 100, are some type of ramp spell, whether they be a mana rock or a rampant growth, uh, cultivate, things like that. Then we've also got about 12 draw spells on the top 100 card. Then we've also got about 27 removal spells, like the ones that we were just talking about. I also added a category for protection spells, things like swift foot boots or heroic intervention or what, what have you, things that would protect you. I also included counter spells among this list. And there are about 10 protection spells 
uh, on the top 100 cards. And then finally, there's that miscellaneous category. And the miscellaneous includes a lot of versatile spells. For example, charms, Rakdos charm or Obzon charm. Those can do a lot of different types of things. They could be removal, but they could also be some other type of thing. Obzon charm can be removal or it can draw you cards. So I put that into more of a miscellaneous category. Uh, also, win condition cards like Aurelia, Gisela, Avenger of Zendikar, technically. Uh, those are also in the miscellaneous category because they can certainly point into one, but they're not necessarily like a type of removal or protection necessarily. And then there's also quite a lot of tutors in the miscellaneous category. Uh, engines like Sun Titan and Venser are also in there. Utility cards like Eternal Witness and Deathrite Shaman. There's a whole bunch in that miscellaneous category, which would certainly be interesting to go into on a later show to see the cards that don't necessarily fit into the, the veggies. But I just wanted to break those down there. 28 ramp spells, 12 draw spells, 27 removal spells, about 10 protection, and 23 other miscellaneous types of things. Oof, whole lot of information, but what's your guys' take when looking at the, you know, 100 most popular cards and seeing them broken down in this vegetable There's no lands. No lands. Well, yeah. But the plan for Joey is so then you have to discard on turn one so you can reanimate oh, that's on true, turn two. Yeah. I mean, well, I guess Bazaar's you know, it's kind of draw. It's kind of, yeah, right, kind of a land. Problem, Joey, problem just, solved. You guys are absolutely How ridiculous. Many? For real. <laughs> like, of course, there aren't <laughs> any lands among the most popular spells that we're looking at. Of course not. Anyway, what do you actually think? Were you surprised by any by the popularity of certain types of cards that we're seeing? Um, I thought draw spells would be a little more prevalent or just draw effects. Stuff like Rhystic Study we always talk about. or Yeah, I mean, for Rexian Arena, there's always a bunch of stuff. And, and people always talk... You know, I well, I want to establish my board. I want my hand to be full. People just kind of emphasize towards that that resource accumulation and draw spells is how you do that. So I figured draw effects would be a little bit higher, more than just twelve out of the top one hundred. Yeah, I agree. Um, particularly because when it comes to making your EDH deck function, draw spells are almost always kind of the joker. They're the card that can be anything, and the more draw spells you having your deck at least for me it always feels like that's the more wild cards i have that fix generic problems a draw spell becomes the solution because it gets the solutions in the hand so when in doubt i i, I throw in more draw spells that's kind of how my, my brain tends to work with decks i'm surprised that there's not more of them on that list because i would have guessed at least if this was the list of you know dana's top cards i would have had more draw spells than that on it yeah, draw was a, a really big one. I was also personally surprised by the absolute prevalence of removal, seeing that 27 of the top 100 cards are removal spells in some way, I think says something about the format. And again, these don't necessarily indicate that, you know, this is the exact ratio that we'd see within an average deck, but it does indicate the popularity of certain types of cards for certain. I think that draw spells suffer from not necessarily being as sexy as a thing like an anguished unmaking. Having the ability to do anything like that with your removal spell isn't necessarily as fun as, okay, I cast Harmonize. And that is probably informing the popularity of these cards in that way. I think that's very fair, yeah. One thing we talked about really early, and it's, it's a difficult thing to categorize, you know, it could be miscellaneous, it could be a draw, it could be a, a, a whatever in this category, is, is win conditions. And that's not something you can really categorize, so I get why it's not on the list. So out of curiosity, like, do you have a particular target um, in terms of win conditions that you guys try to put in your decks? That is a really good question, and you're right. It was a very difficult thing to actually try and categorize according to the top 100 cards. You know, things like Xenagos, God of Revels, show up, and that's an excellent one. Gisela, Blade of Gold Knight, could technically be one as well. But win conditions can also take form in, you know, combos, for example. So it becomes a lot tougher to categorize those. Generally speaking, I think that's one of the more underrepresented things on the top 100 page. For my personal decks... I that again, as you know, Matt is fond of saying, is that it can certainly depend on the deck. If it's a very creature heavy deck, technically, all of my creatures are also win conditions. But if it's not a creature heavy deck, then like you know, I'm thinking of my uh, Kaneos and Tiro group hug deck. That's uh, one where the win conditions are of the utmost importance because I need to have a big diversity of them. And I think I probably only have like four or five in that particular deck. Sometimes they take the form of an insurrection, but sometimes they take the form of milling someone out instead, which is a total surprise that no one sees coming, which is why I have fun doing it. So that's that's definitely a, a tough category to pin down. Yeah, and I think I think these these ratios. You, it, it, people, I think, 
when they hear us saying, you know, 28 of the top 100 cards are, are ramp spells, that does not mean you should play 28 ramp spells or, or 12, 12, 12 right. draw spells. <laughs> That's just of the, of the, of the top yeah, 100 sure. cards. As far as the exact ratios, I know it's a cop-out, but it, it really depends on the deck. Like, for example, if you're playing a bunch of ones and two drops like Dana does with his, uh, uh, what was that deck, your Simic deck that is real low to the ground with one and two drops? Uh, your, uh, Edric, yeah, your Edric You probably don't need a great deal of ramp for that deck. So you might emphasize right, yeah. draw spells in that, for example. In in my Moldrotha deck, for uh, as another example, there's a lot of kill spells, but they're also kind of utility stuff. There's uh, Executioner's Capsule, and then there's stuff to, to repeatedly draw, but also kind of falls in utility a little bit there too. Um, so really, it's it's so deck dependent. I, I don't think there's ever going to be one hard and fast rule as far as how many of these ratios you should have in your decks other than don't play 32 lands, guys. You need a very, very good oh. <laughs> reason to play less than 35 in, in 95% of decks. That's that's there, the er veggie right there. Make sure that you there, have enough resources to play yes. your stuff. There should be an article coming in the next couple of weeks on EDH Rec about just that Ooh. topic. Oh, I wonder who could be writing that article. <laughs> Patrick. It's Patrick. We'll have to look at the superior numbers when the time comes. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, that was really, really fun. I really enjoyed looking through all of these vegetables and making sure that I'm eating the proper amount of vegetables, or at least that my library is eating the right number of vegetables. This metaphor has gotten very, very weird, but regardless, I really, really enjoyed it. The average deck and looking at the components that make up your average deck are very, very worthwhile to, to scrutinize to make sure that your deck is doing the thing that it needs to do. Because you can't just have, you know, 98 win conditions in your deck. You, you got to have the stuff that, you know, greases the wheels and helps you get there. So this is a really fun thing to explore. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, I think it's good to always revisit the, the basics of basics. Make sure people aren't forgetting about, you know, those essentials to make sure their deck can run. Yeah, exactly. But with that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? So you can find me, uh, Matt Morgan, the car bloated. On Twitter's at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And you can find me, Dana Roach, the uh, the meat sweats, uh, on Twitter, <laughs> at Dana Roach. And you can hear me once a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. Who is obviously the keto. <laughs> right, right. And I'm Joey Schultz, the probably full of desserts and things this holiday season. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Also, special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. Follow EDHREC and the EDHREC cast on Facebook and Twitter. We're doing a giveaway when EDHREC gets 5,000 likes and when the cast gets 1,000 followers on Twitter. So head on over there to smash those like buttons for a chance at a cool prize. You can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com and you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast. This podcast is posted every week on EDHREC's community content spotlight section where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and more insights but until then remember edh wreck your deck before you wreck your deck the sound of one hand clapping i had a teacher ask me that once and i sat there and like flopped my fingers together and like it made a clapping sound and i got the dirtiest look ever i don't know how to respond to this i mean you're the one that gave like digital high fives that made noises so and you're the one who called attention to them and made it awkward i did that was that was the goal. Appreciate you, Matt. <laughs>